That song is a theological feast, and it pretty much preaches the message for me for today. If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to Ruth chapter 2. God's good providence over all things, working our good in all things. Ruth chapter 2. Last Sunday, we began our study in the book of Ruth, and I've titled our study together of the book of Ruth, The Gospel of God's Redemption, the good news that God is redeeming his people. As we left off last week, this man, Eleazar, and his wife, Naomi, sorry, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and two sons fled Bethlehem for neighboring Moab during a time of great famine. While living in Moab for 10 years, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. And then, sadly, Naomi loses her husband and her two adult sons, leaving her widowed and alone in a foreign land with only her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And after Naomi pleads with them to stay in Moab, where it would be easier for them, where it's much more likely for them to remarry and have children, she returns to Bethlehem now that the famine in Israel has ended. But Ruth... Her daughter-in-law, a Moabitess, pledges to go with Naomi back to the land of Israel. We find her pledge in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So Naomi and Ruth Return to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. How are these two women going to make it? Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, And said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained From the morning until now, she has been sitting in the house for a little while. And Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not know previously." May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord and the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have 
comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this can seem like a distant story with little relevance to us today, but that would be to read your word short-sightedly and to fail to recognize that your hand was actively at work in Naomi's life, in Ruth's life, in Boaz's life, orchestrating your good and perfect purposes in their lives through loss and through gains. Lord, help us to see that this is true in our lives as well, that you are constantly at work bringing about your good purposes. Sometimes those good purposes involve our hurts, losses, and grief, but that your good hand is active nonetheless, even in those moments of sadness. Lord, teach us that you are good and you can be trusted, and help us to be faithful in our responses and in our responsibilities. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at chapter 2 this morning, I think there are two categories of truth that are placed side by side for us to see. Placed there for us, if you will, to glean from Scripture. Yes, I, I did that. <laughs> These two truths that are placed side by side in chapter 2, interwoven throughout are the truths of providence and perspiration. Sovereignty and sweat. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The two parallel truths that God is in total control of all things, and yet, also, we are responsible before God for our choices and our actions. Now these two categories of truth can seem to us at times to be in conflict with each other, even to be complete logical contradictions. But what we may see as two categories of truth in apparent contradiction, how can God be at, in total control of all things, and yet I still be responsible. These two categories of truth that appear to be in contradiction, God reveals to us in his word as actually 
the reality of how all things truly are and how all things are working out for God's good and perfect will and for our blessing. So before we walk through our text this morning, I just want to share a little bit more about these two categories of truth, providence and perspiration, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. First of all, I want you to see that they are both equally true and that they are thoroughly biblical principles. Divine sovereignty, the truth that God is in control of all that takes place in the world and in our lives, is a clearly biblical truth. There's lots of places we could turn to in the scriptures that establish the truth that God is in total control of all that takes place in the world and in our lives. Let me just share one with you. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Now the big takeaway from those verses in Isaiah 46 is this. God is sovereign over all things. His purpose will be established. His purpose will be accomplished. He calls birds of prey and he calls people of his purpose from a far country. Truly God has spoken. Truly he will bring it to pass. He has planned it. Surely he will do it. God's in total control. Even when it seems like he's not. God is sovereign over not only the good things that happen, but also the bad things. That's harder for us to accept. Isaiah 45, the previous chapter, verse 77, God says, I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And we have to wrestle with that. We have to come to terms with that. But that is the God of the Bible. God is sovereign over all that happens. The truth is that if there is a single thing in this world that is out of God's control, then he would cease to be sovereign. He wouldn't be the God he has revealed himself to be in the Bible. To tear some aspect of God's sovereignty away from him in an effort to protect him from the bad things that happen in this life is to make God out to be a liar. And he doesn't need our protection. He doesn't need our defense. He doesn't need our help. God is sovereign over all things, even the hard things in life. And yes, he is even sovereign over sin. But not in such a way that he is the author of sin or that he himself is guilty of any sin. For that could never be. Is God sovereign over evil? Yes. Is God the author of evil? No. That's hard for us to understand. That seems like a contradiction itself. Let me share a little bit from D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord. This was really helpful to me when I first read it 20 years ago. Carson says this, God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. 
Yet that evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes, to human beings, and to evil angels. On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. In other words, when you and I do something good, something truly God-honoring, who should truly get the credit? God. God alone, right? But when you and I sin... And though God is sovereign, who is it morally chargeable to? To us. Now Carson concludes with this. If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, that he's sovereign over all of it, gets credit only and solely for the good, and never for the evil... If this sounds just a bit too convenient for God, my response is that, according to the Bible, this is the only God there is. There is no other. And perhaps the place in Scripture where these two principles are placed side by side, divine sovereignty, human responsibility, without a hint of contradiction, is Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. And I want you to turn there. So keep your place in Ruth. And turn with me to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, where Peter is talking about the death of Jesus that has just occurred not too long prior to this sermon. Acts 2, 23. Peter says this, This man, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So who planned the cross? God did, right? Was the cross a great evil? Was that evil morally chargeable to God? No. Who was responsible for the cross? Who is, who is the cross morally chargeable to? Mankind. One could even say us because of our sin and rebellion. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And yet God was sovereign over all of it. But in such a way that he's not the author of evil. And that sinful man is guilty for putting to death the Lord of glory. The gospel is the good news that God sent his son into the world to die in the place of sinners. And today, God offers everyone forgiveness through faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He was sovereign over all of it, accomplishing his plan of redemption, his his good and kind purposes in salvation, sovereign over all of it, which included the evil, heinous crucifixion of his son by the hands of sinful men who alone that great crime is morally chargeable to. So again, we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility placed side by side in Scripture. And we're going to see that in Ruth chapter 2 today as well. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, side by side. So that first biblical truth, divine sovereignty or providence. Our God is sovereign over all things at all times. And he's always working out his will and our blessing but also human responsibility. Human responsibility. Human beings are responsible before God for their thoughts, their choices, and their actions. So God is sovereign. Can everyone say amen? Amen. And we are responsible. Can everyone say amen? 
or owe me. Human beings are responsible before God for their thoughts, choices, and actions. God's sovereignty over all things and his sovereignty even over sin and evil never releases us from our personal responsibility or our guilt before God for our sin. God's sovereignty never overrides individual responsibility. Never. We are responsible before him. The Bible teaches us that every person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God Romans 3.23, and is therefore guilty and condemned before him. That verse teaches us we are responsible before God for our sinful thoughts, our sinful decisions, our sinful actions. The Bible teaches us that we're also responsible in life generally to plan ahead, to work hard, to act in a way that's responsible and glorifying to God. And when we fail to do so, we are guilty before God. And so the fact that God is sovereign over all things does not give us reason to sit back, to be lazy, to do nothing. And that becomes clear in our text this morning. As we see Ruth laboring, working hard to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi even though she believes that God is sovereignly in control of all things. So the Bible is clear in teaching us that despite God's sovereignty over all things, we are still responsible before God for our thoughts, choices, and actions. This includes taking responsibility for our sin as well as taking responsibilities in other areas of life like working hard and making wise decisions and planning ahead and all of that. So in the Bible, we see providence and perspiration, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, sovereignty and sweat presented side by side as entirely compatible truths, even though at times they may seem like in our eyes to be contradictory in our finite finite minds, but they are not contradictions. They function together perfectly in our infinite God's economy. So in our text this morning, we have this beautiful and very practical example that testifies to this truth and illustrates this truth of what the Bible teaches throughout, that God is in control of all things, and yet we are still responsible to act. Providence and perspiration are not mutually exclusive truths, and they meet together perfectly in the true life story of Ruth. So let's look together, see these two equally true and yet seemingly contradictory concepts of perspiration and providence working their way out in the life of Ruth so that we may become more aware of their dual reality in our own lives and live faithfully embracing both of these truths, never letting either one of them go. All right, so first we're going to see perspiration. Perspiration. We are responsible for our actions, and our actions have real consequences. Perspiration. We can see Ruth's perspiration pretty clearly in this chapter. We see her understanding of her own personal responsibility to work and to act, to provide for her needs and the needs of her mother-in-law. Even though she knows God's in control, even though she knows and believes that God is going to provide, and we see this in four clear examples, all right? So we got A, B, C, and D. Ready? We see her perspiration, first of all, in her desire to work. A desire to work. Look at, oh, verse 1 is great, right? Chapter chapter 2, verse 1 of Ruth. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, here's some of that foreshadowing. Like, let me introduce you to this character. Uh, He's going to be important, but uh, we'll say more about him later. Now verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. See, she, 
She's already ha- has a faith-filled outlook of the future. But she knows she's got to get to work to receive the blessing God has for her. She can't just sit back and wait and coast and hope. She knows she has a part to play in God's unfolding plan. And so Naomi says to her, go, my daughter. So Ruth shows this internal desire to work hard to provide for herself and Naomi. She didn't just sit around and expect others to provide for her, to bring her food on a silver platter. No one's going to do that. She's got to go and and work for it. If she wants to eat, she's got to work. Proverbs 16.26 says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. You want to eat? You got to work. That's how the Lord has set this world up. Work is not a sin. Work is not the curse. Right? Adam and Eve were called to work before the fall ever happened. It was part of God's design and still is part of God's design for us as human beings that we would labor and work and take dominion and improve things and plan all of it under his kingship. She did not sit back and say, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how God's going to provide. She wasn't lazy. She wasn't unmotivated. She knew that God was in control, but she also knew that she needed to work. She wasn't looking for someone else to do the work for her. So desire to work. We see her perspiration. Secondly, we see her diligence to work. And our need for diligence in work. Notice that her desire to work did not stand alone, but that it showed itself in her diligence at work. Look at verse 3, chapter 2. So she departed and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Her desire to work is immediately seen in her diligence in finding work. Gleaning. Gleaning. That's picking up the the leftovers of a harvest. After the harvesters have gone through, there's undoubtedly some that gets left behind, some that's not worth their time, remnants, if you will, leftovers. And that was the provision made in the Old Testament for helping the poor in society. Was they would come in after the harvesters, these gleaners, and they would pick up whatever was left, and whatever was left was theirs to take and keep and provide for themselves in this way. Takes us back to Leviticus 19.9. Let me read it for you. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field. So you're to cut the corners short. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Look at the Lord's care for the poor. The Lord's care for the stranger. The Lord's care for the widow and the orphan. But it wasn't just a handout, right? They weren't to pick it up and provide it for the the needy. They said, you're welcome to it, but you have to come get it. Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 21. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. So don't beat it twice. Right? You beat it once. You get the the, the main part, but you leave that 10% as a loss. 
It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow. So this was God's way of providing for those who were in need. What a wise provision of the Lord. So that those in genuine need had a way of working for their food, maintaining their own personal responsibility, and preserving their personal dignity. And this is the task that Ruth applied herself to diligently. In verse 7, where the field foreman testifies that Ruth had been gleaning in the field from morning until now. She's been working the whole time. Look down at verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. She worked all day, morning till evening. Then... Her work wasn't done. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. She gleaned in the field all day. Then after working in the field all day, she threshed what she had gleaned and prepped it for the walk home so that it would be ready to use and turn into bread when she got home. About an ephah. It's about 30 to 40 pounds a barley. That's a pretty good sack. Verse 18, she took it up. Took what up? The 30 to 40 pound bag and went into the city, Bethlehem, where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Verse 23, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz. This is on other days, in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Two different crops. Probably a period of two to three months of harvest there. So this picture here is not a snapshot of, a, of some unique one-off day in Ruth's life where she worked hard. This was Ruth's regular habit. So in Ruth, we see not only the desire to work, but also her diligence in work. See, we see the humility in our work. Look at verses 8 through 10. Naomi said to her, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter there. Chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? Ruth showed great appreciation and respect for her employer. That's, in essence, what Boaz was functioning as here. She did not have an entitlement mentality. Well, the law says you have, you have to do this for me. No. She realizes that Boaz was going above and beyond what the law required. That he was showing even greater compassion than the Lord demanded. And she recognized that. She did not say, hey, Boaz, you owe me. This much and more. She was instead mystified why she would be shown such mercy and compassion. She believed in the providence of God, but didn't view it with an attitude of, well, God, it's about time you showed up and did something for me. No, she manifested humility in her work. Giving honor to those who were over her the owner of the field, recognizing his great generosity and God's goodness in her life. And then we see 
Under D, personal sacrifice for the good of others. In verse 11, Boaz responds to Ruth's question as to why she's been shown such favor by him. She knows she's not deserving of it. She's a foreigner. Look at Ruth 2.11. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. I know your story, Ruth. And how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and you came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Furthermore, Ruth's personal sacrifice is seen in verse 23 where it says that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. That's a personal sacrifice. Life might have been much easier for Ruth if she'd been on her own, in her own homeland. That 30-pound sack of grain which she spent the whole day gathering and beating would last twice as long if it was supporting only one person. But she knew her responsibility and she lived up to it. And it cost her. She left her family. She left her homeland. She left her heritage. She left her religion. She left her security behind all because she was now following the one true God. And we begin to see it is because of the sacrifice that Ruth was willing to make that God's greatest blessings in Ruth's life were going to come to fruition. So a few lessons to be learned under perspiration, all right? A few lessons, a few takeaways. God blesses hard work. He does. Sowing and reaping. God has built into the world the principle of sowing and reaping. And God blesses hard work. Another lesson, God's determining of the end does not invalidate the means. Though God is in control over all things, it doesn't mean we don't have to go to work in the morning. Belief in God's providence should not lead to an attitude of pride, but rather humility. If you really understand God's providence, God's sovereignty over all things, it doesn't induce pride. It induces humility, reverence for God, a desire to honor Him and serve Him. And furthermore, another lesson, just because God is providential does not mean that we will not suffer loss and sacrifice along the way. Suffering is in the plan of God too. Remember, before Ruth meets Boaz and all the blessings that follow, she lost a husband. She was thrown into poverty, dependent on the kindness of others, required to work hard day after day after day just to put food on the table. That was part of God's plan too. All right, so that's perspiration. The second principle, again, that seems to lie in contradiction, but it doesn't, and that is providence. That is, God is sovereignly orchestrating all events for our good, and therefore we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Not only do we see perspiration in this text, chapter 2, but we also see clearly God's providence, and again, four primary areas where we see God's providence. First of all, God's providence in the timing of events. Look with me at chapter 1 and verse 22, the last verse, okay? 
Chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now that is no coincidence. We know that it's during the barley harvest that she meets Boaz, right? This is all playing out according to God's plan. A plan that Ruth and Naomi had no idea about yet. They were just doing the next thing they knew to do. But God was behind the scenes orchestrating it all and orchestrating the timing of events. It's the time of the barley harvest that Naomi decides it's time to go home. And Ruth decides, I'm going with you. It's the time of the barley harvest, the beginning of the barley harvest. No coincidence. Furthermore, in verse 4 of chapter 2, we see what happened at just the time when Ruth happened to, be, happened to be working in Boaz's field. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Okay, Boaz wasn't at his field when Ruth originally showed up. But he got there just then. That's another way you could translate, now behold. Just then, just at that moment, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Again, we should see that there is no coincidence in the timing here. This is God's sovereign appointment calendar being carried out. And Ruth or Boaz, neither, neither of them knew about it. But they had a divine appointment together. They were scheduled to meet that day at that time in that field by God's design. So we see God's providence being worked out in the timing of events. Next, we see God's providence in directing us. Chapter 2, verse 3. So Ruth departs Naomi's side and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. She happened to come to the portion of the field. That language is very intentional. From our perspective, these are just everyday decisions. This isn't some bolt of lightning from the sky. This is just me doing the next thing I know I got to do. And yet, God is behind the scenes working all things for our good and His glory. Surprise, surprise, what a coincidence! Ruth ends up working in Boaz's field. She doesn't even know who Boaz is at this point. This was God's invisible, sovereign, providential hand guiding Ruth to exactly the right place at just the right time. It's providence. You see, the fields that people worked in in those days were not separate fields with clear boundaries. I'm from Indiana. You could drive by fields, and my cousin, I wasn't that knowledgeable, but my cousin was super knowledgeable about all the farms, right? He knew who owned what land, who was farming what, who was leasing out their land. He knew it all. There were clearly distinguishable property lines, fences, you know, the whole deal. Not so in those days. These fields were large, and to the untrained eye, you wouldn't know when one person's part of that field started and the other person's ended. So Ruth is just working along in the field, following the harvesters, keeping her head down. She doesn't, she's not paying attention to anything with no clue of whose field she was gleaning in. And yet God had sovereignly guided Ruth to the right location. And as we just saw a moment ago, at just the right time, she happened to be gleaning in Boaz's field. God is providentially directing our steps as we look to him. See, God's providence is active in directing other people 
So not just us, other people. You think about all the variables involved here. But that's not hard for the Lord. He's working it all together. Again, verse 4, we see Boaz arriving on the scene at just the right moment. Now, who caused that to happen? We later see and read that Boaz notices Ruth in verse 5. Oh, who's that? We then see Boaz taking particular care of Ruth in verses 8 through 9. Boaz is moved with compassion. He tells her to stay in the field near his own servant girls. He's instructed his men not to harm her in any way. He's also provided refreshment for her with water. Water that had to be carted in and would be guarded jealously. This would save Ruth much time and effort in her labor. In verses 14 and 15, we see Boaz sharing his meal with Ruth and then instructing his men to give her extraordinary privileges. As a gleaner, you were not to get too close to the harvesters. You're supposed to hang back and wait till they, they were done with their work. But he tells them to let her get close and to even let her pull some stalks from the bundles for her to pick up. You know, drop, drop a little extra for her. Make it a little easier for her, would you? Then in verse 20, we see Ruth telling Naomi about her experiences with Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. He's a kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see more about that in weeks to come and the significance of that. But it refers to the relationship of family members and the resulting obligation to care, protect, and provide for one's extended family, especially in the case of a death. And Boaz is going to become that for Ruth and for Naomi. And it will change the lineage from whom would come David and from whom would come the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is acting in providence in the directing of other people in our lives. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by mistake. And then finally, God's providence is active in prayer. We see this in verse 12 of chapter 2. Where Boaz prays over Ruth, essentially, wishing her a blessing. May the Lord reward your work, Ruth, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz prays a blessing over Ruth. What Boaz maybe doesn't fully realize at the time is that he will be the very answer to his own prayer. That too is God's providence at work. Answering Boaz's prayer in ways that Boaz could not foresee. And then we see, too, that God is also here throughout chapter 2, providentially answering Naomi's prayer back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Go back there with me quickly. Naomi's lost her husband. The daughters have, daughters-in-law have lost their husbands. And she says, go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. That's a prayer that God will answer in unforeseen ways to Naomi through Ruth. And in so doing, Naomi would be taken care of too. All right, so some lessons learned, some takeaways, all right? God is actively orchestrating all the events of life for his glory and our good. 
God is the one behind the scenes causing all things to work together for our good. God is not simply some divine watchmaker winding up our lives and letting it go. No, He is the divine time determiner. Our times are in His hands. and They are good hands. There is no such thing as chance or luck or karma. There is only divine providence. And it is always at work. And God often uses people as the means of His providence. So we have to be open to this. As Ruth was. As Boaz was. We have to be open to give generously to those in need. And we have to be open to greatly receive from those who give to us. Recognizing that that is God's providence too. And then realize that prayer is powerful. Boaz ended up being the answer to his own prayer. But it was all a result of God's providence. God uses prayer to bring about his providential purposes. Prayer is effective. Prayer is powerful. Because the God we pray to is in control. Providence does not exclude perspiration. Nor does perspiration negate the reality of divine providence. God is in complete and total control. Yes, absolutely. And yet we are responsible. Responsible to play our part. And responsible most of all to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. God has providentially given his son so that sinners may turn from their rebellion and believe on Jesus and have eternal life. God is working out all things for our good, those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that uh, this life, this world is not spinning out of control but that all things are regulated and guided providentially by you. That includes the good things, the blessings, and it includes the hard things, the losses. Help us to trust you, to believe your promises, to believe your character, to build our lives on truth, to anchor ourselves to you, and to your good work. Help us also, Lord, to do our part, to play our role, to be faithful with what you entrust to us, to work hard, to believe, to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.